Hi, I'm Steve. And I'm an engineer. And I'm Mac, a history teacher. Welcome to Civics on the Rocks, a once a month podcast where we, along with our producer, Anne, Hello. Talk about politics, history, and science. And science fiction. We're also drinking. Yes, lots of drinking. And bad jokes. Not distasteful. Just poor quality. Okay, let's get started. The question of the day, is it all right to punch a Nazi? I'll jump in first. By all means. No. <laughs> no, it's not. Okay. So, yeah, I'm the one who were expecting me to answer. No, it is kind of okay to punch a Nazi because they're bad guys. I mean, Nazis today, it's like, why are they even called neo-Nazis? I mean, if you're choosing to be a Nazi, you're a Nazi. And, you know, the genocide, the fascism, the murdering people, the secret police, it's like, and you're choosing to be that? Mm-hmm. Okay. So maybe there's a line perhaps there that we've crossed where it's just like, no, these people, we can just punch them in the face. But I do want to temper that because I would like to make so, the So for the record, you're saying, yes, it is okay, asterisk. Yeah, because I, I, may not, I may not hold to that opinion because it is admittedly an uncomfortable opinion, no matter how satisfying it may seem. Um, but, well, start with this. A soul saved is better than a soul condemned. And, and wouldn't the ideal outcome be that all of these people who are fool Nazis today, you know, that, that they are led to see the light and, you know, is in a way that, that that's done through, you know, more speech and better speech. Um, and then you convince them to see the error of their ways and they, and they, they decide to, you know, not be Nazis anymore. And wouldn't that be the best outcome? Are you going to be able to do that if you go around punching Nazis when that just sort of entrenched them. So, yeah, I recognize that although they may deserve it while they're Nazis, that doesn't mean they always have to be Nazis. And if you start punching them, they're likely to stay Nazis. Well, and, and yeah, building on your point of the, if you were a Nazi in the 30s, maybe you had some different view of what society should be. If you're a Nazi now, you're buying into explicit evil basically you're choosing that path so you're most in need of a punch of any group i would pretty much i would argue um i just think it's the we're in a civilization one of the points of living in a civilization is that we no longer engage in citizen on citizen violence that's no longer acceptable really in almost any except for the rarest of circumstances is it really that rare Put a pin in that. Okay. So anyway, you're not supposed to engage in citizen-on-citizen -citizen violence. So that's the province of the state in order to enforce the laws and things like that. And so you shouldn't ever punch a Nazi just because they're, they're a vile person. So it's the province of the state to engage in violence against other civilians? Is that what you were saying? Yeah, pretty okay. much. All right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't like the phrasing, but yes. <laughs> now, I, yeah, I... Another thing to be concerned, like a very practical matter, is that if you go around punching Nazis, if it becomes a thing and, and you convince a lot of people that let's go find Nazis and punch them, there's a lot of opportunity in this country, especially right now, especially in this state, for escalation. Mm -hmm. And that would not be good because it could escalate pretty quickly. So, and it's one of those things, seemingly, as long as we all abide by the rules that nobody 
should shoot at each other. Just, you yeah. know. Um, then, okay. You know, maybe there's hope to, like, actually use that as an opportunity to convince some of these idiots to to give up their ways. Let me let me pose a corollary question, grounded more act more specifically in history. Is it okay for a former lunar landing astronaut to punch a guy who denies the lunar landings exist? The answer to that question is yes. <laughs> you are so, not going to get me to go against anything Buzz Aldrin does. So why is it okay for Buzz Aldrin to punch a conspiracy loony, and not okay for Joe Citizen to punch a Nazi? Okay, so the asterisk here is is like okay, technically it's not, but he was the second man on the moon, and this person like you you can't get me to believe that these people actually believe that there wasn't a, a lunar landing, or the flat earthers. You can't get me to believe that there are some people out there that actually think the Earth is flat. Oh no, there are there are quite a few people who actually believe this stuff. No, I. There are people know, who believe all kind of wrong-headed stuff. I th if anything, the last four to six years should have convinced you of that. But, okay, but here's the thing. A lot of those people who we're talking about, I don't know that they actually are drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak. Like, I think they recognize it as, hey, this is an opportunity. This gives us, we, we buy into this, we defend this, whatever. And, and this gives us, like, a blank check to just, you know, rage. And, like, we're entitled to. We get to do it because... But I, not like... that. I, I, if I say I and, believe this, I get to be angry all the time. Yeah. Which is what I really want to do. And it's... Well, and it's more than that. It's like, it's not just, um, like, you know, I believe this, so I get to do it. It's, it's like, you can't tell me different. Like, you can't, like, you're not entitled to change my opinion. You know, you have to accept my opinion as a valid opinion, but just different from yours. You know, even though this opinion allows me to rage against any number of my fellow human beings and, you know, wish that they were dead or thrown off a cliff or whatever. So, mm -hmm. I, I don't, I think that... Th and not not that it's all like pent up rage or whatever. I mean, I'm sure there's another, another things, but like even going back to the flat earthers, I mean, I know they're. I still don't totally believe that they. I mean, they're very earnest with it, and they will go to great lengths to explain why it's a flat square or whatever. But you you can, just their resistance to being convinced. Mm -hmm. Like, honestly, I think it's probably more likely that, that the people that are going around advertising themselves as Nazis, that you probably convince them of the error of their ways more so than some of the flat earthers or, you know, or whatever, the lunar landers or whatever. Because I really feel that there's something psychological going on there for a lot of them, whatever, for whatever reason, that it's like, if I do this, then I get to be... Well, it's like I get to be contrarian. People get to yell at me and say how stupid I am. And like somehow they want that. They mm -hmm. need that to feel to feel like they're a pariah. And yeah, well, yeah. I think I think for some. Yeah. And I think for some there it's not even that they're not resistant. I think they're like fog. They stumbled across this at a time when they were influ influenced, influenceable. And they saw somebody who was charismatic on a video and they thought that was cool. So they just picked that up as a neat idea and they're gonna float with that. And they don't resist being convinced. They can't be convinced because they weren't really convinced in the first place. It was just something they picked up. 
Well, and, and, and they haven't thought about it. They haven't invested anything in it. They're just, <clears throat> that's a neat idea. So. Well, and if they're a pariah, they get to be the victim. Mm. And, and I think, I think that's some of what's going on too. Yeah. And, and I don't know enough about psychology to say, you know, what the connection is between different stressors and whatever that, that people have and like adopting some kind of, you know, persona that lets them make themselves the victim, you know, almost like that, that sort of, um, frees them up of responsibility Mm -hmm. for whatever it is they do actually believe like they don't have to take responsibility for it because they're so put upon they're, they're, they're the victims here. Well, I think some people it's, they, they feel like they're losing out on something, but it's amorphous and they can't define it. So if they pick this cause, they know they'll get persecuted for, they can blame it all on that. Oh, I lost out on this opportunity. I'm not doing as well as I hoped I would in life. I lost my job, whatever, because I'm a flat earther. That's what it is. Well, there is a psychology of um, not wanting to admit you're wrong. And this is universal with human beings. But there has been a lot of research as to, like, for instance, QAnon. Why do people, once they're involved in it, stay in it? And part of it is because even when you start seeing evidence that it is not true, the things that you've heard and believed are not accurate, it is very hard to admit that you've been that long for that long of amount of time. And so it's almost like when they're closest to admitting the truth to themselves is when they're going to deny it the hardest. And this is also why people stay in cults. Yes, literally. I, I was going to say it's zealotry, which is actually oddly dovetails with a conversation I had at work today about uh, industrial quality control. Because one of the things that you do in modern, by which modern I mean 1940s on, quality control is continuous improvement. You look for anything that is an opportunity to improve the product or prove the process, even if it's small, whatever it is. So you're always open to opportunities for improvement and learning and correction and change through that whereas people who are going to you know fight against any potential of change are simply not not engaging in that okay that reminds me of something this is a little off topic but tell me if you've heard this story because it's along the same lines story of john d rockefeller and the number of rivets in an oil drum i i think i think i have but i don't recall the details because this is this is one of those things that i that i know there's a story out there i remember most of the details but i haven't really looked it up in the last few years before i actually tell students about it so um so wikipedia the, is for yeah that so he was um so okay you know the oil's coming out of the ground they're putting it into barrels and and he's looking for ways to to save money here and there and whatever and so one of the things he does is he goes to the people that make the barrels and he says, how many rivets do you put in the barrels? And it's some number. And he says, do you have to put that many in there? And they're like, well, we don't know. This is, this is how many we put in. They don't break, so we keep doing it. And he's like, I want you to find out, you know, how many rivets, you know, test it out, how many rivets you can put in where it'll burst, and then you're going to put, like, a handful more than that. And, you know, ends up saving over the course of time, like, millions of dollars, you know, for, for the cost of the, the rivets and the time spent with the extra mm -hmm. unnecessary rivets. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. The, the version I'm familiar with, uh, 20th century, I want to say his first name maybe was Albert. I'm not sure, but last name was Dimming. And he basically invented the modern quality control 
Edwards, regime. Edwards Deming. Yeah, Edwards Deming. Okay. He's an American. He came up with it in America looking at manufacturing, went to American manufacturers, and they all said, no, 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 no we don't want to do that. We don't, we don't work that way. We look for major innovations and changes in our products for improvement. So he ended up talking to a bunch of Japanese who thought that was a great idea, which is why basically 60s, 70s, 80s, the Japanese industrial products, cars, consumer goods, whatever, became so good and so favored because they instituted this idea of looking at their process, understanding it, and implementing improvement wherever they could. Quality control and improvement, continuous improvement in quality. And it took the Americans until the late 80s, 90s to really realize what they needed to do to catch up. Now, well, if the Nazis would do that and self-reflect on themselves, try to bring uh, it back. Let's not talk and, about and talk Nazis about continuous improvement. more efficient. Okay. Well, but they'd realize some of their ideas actually weren't that successful and they would improve upon them. Uh, well, if they were rational to begin with, which since well, they're yeah, thieves yeah. and murderers and that was kind of the point of their philosophy, you know, yeah, fair. they could be punched. See what I did there? Mm -hmm. Is it okay to punch a Nazi if one punches you first? Oh, yeah, that's self-defense. Absolutely. Or if you see one preparing to punch someone else. Anybody so. else, or do you have to know and care about them? No, anybody. No, yeah, anybody. I mean, you're free to come to the defense of others. You have no legal obligation to, uh, but you can. Heck yeah. And, yeah, I would if I saw Nazis going after somebody. I mean, okay, I'd like to think I would. I don't want to be standing on the street going like, man, look at that. Oh, my God. Going after them physically. Yeah. If they're going after them to expound their ideas, you're, no, you're not okay to punch them. But you are okay to interrupt them, stand in front of them, and yell back at them. Yeah. What would you yell at a Nazi? La Marseillaise. <laughs> I would sing that at the top of my lungs. I don't know. Something completely random and off topic, probably. Just to distract them and give other people the time to get away. Or we're not going to take it, Twisted Sister. Nice. Something anthem-like. So, story of something that happened in, in class this week that uh, has to do with certain policies uh, in our state that are getting enacted. I had a student ask me who, um, well, I'll just say prefers to go by a different name than what's on the roster. Um, what I thought about some of the policies about having to report um, if, if you have a trans student and, and report that to the parents and that sort of thing. And I said, I can tell you two things. I will teach whoever comes through my door. And I am, number two, I'm not going to make any decision that would um, like cause a student to come to harm, if, if that's an answer. And they were like, okay. So, but that's, I mean, it is reflective of the time that we live in, that there are people who simply want to impose their, it's not about freedom, it's not about freedom of speech, because there was all of this talk about, oh, you know, it's freedom of speech, whatever, and then the first thing they do when they, is they start shutting people down and, and like, wanting people to go to jail for things. I mean, the, the kinds of things, like, especially after, I'm going to say after the Dobbs decision, mm. where... Um, some people are like, oh, no, it's not going to go any farther than that or whatever. But there were people who were like, including Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who were like, you know, Lawrence is going to get overturned and, and any number of things that it's like we're going to roll it all back. And you, and even, loving. you even say it again. And loving. And love. Yeah. Well, nah, he didn't he didn't mention that part. Well, but that logic seems to go in that direction. It, it does. And so I, I don't. I don't know what he's thinking. 
I don't. I don't. Um, because you, he's not. You, you dumb. don't have insight into the individual no, no, justice. Okay. But he because like pe- people will criticize Justice Thomas, and, and it's like, oh well, he was just you know he was brought on the court just because he was like black and conservative, but he's not you know, and he would do whatever Scalia did or whatever. It's like, no, he's not dumb. Is is the thing, and there are opinions he's written that he's authored, or I mean, where there's you know they're worth reading. Um, but yeah, he, he clearly has, you know, he, he's out to get that stuff, but like how far, because when you go down that path forever will it dominate your destiny. But yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. that's, that's where that goes is overturning loving and, and beyond. Mm -hmm. But then you had justice Kavanaugh's, uh, I guess, concurring opinion where part of it was like, no, you you know, no one should assume just because we're rolling this back that we're going to roll anything else back. And it's like, okay, but look look what many people in many state legislatures see this as like a green light for them to like go after books and go after people themselves. You know, pe- people who are vulnerable mm-hmm. and they're targeting them. They're scapegoating them. And, and they say all this shit about, like, oh, it, you know, Tommy Tuberville, the, the senator who's holding up. Um, the football coach. The, yeah, well, and, and he's holding up the um, appointments to uh, the Pentagon for several positions. and oh, Like a hundred. Yeah, yeah. And, and, he, and he was like, he was on air, he was like, you know, we, there, there's, there's people writing poetry on aircraft carriers. Well, you want to know something? There's four or 5,000 people on aircraft carrier. I think at least a few of them are going to write a few poems. And what's wrong with poems? Well, because it shows you're a wuss, apparently. Uh, yeah. Oh, well, and also, apparently, yeah. the whole, like, poem thing is like a longstanding Navy tradition. Not to mention, oh, you want yeah. to go back to all the time in the 40s when the sailors and would perform shows on deck in drag. Oh, yeah. No, there's that. You know, I mean, like... Or, or it's like, what do you think a sea shanty is? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm not saying that that's what they do down in the bowels of an aircraft carrier. But, you know, but he's complaining as well, like, the Navy is too woke. And it's like, no, this is another example of one of those things that it's like... Nobody believes that woke is actually a thing. They they know now that's their their boogeyman. That's their word that represents a whole bunch of stuff that they all know, wink and a nudge, what it means, but they get to use the word woke. So to tie this back to the whole yeah. Nazi question. So this June a lot of um T shirts were for sale and there was a very popular sentiment that Pride was a riot that the very first pride was Stonewall, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. was a riot against the police who were abusing Assaulting queer them. people. Yeah. And that the only mm-hmm. way that change came about was because they took two arms. They defended themselves physically. So in that case, is it okay to punch a Nazi? So let's let's so let me let me Frame, you collect, frame it this way. Go ahead. Collect your thoughts for a second. So, but this goes back to the, would I, would I punch a Nazi if the Nazi was going to punch somebody else? Yes. If the yeah. Nazi happened to be wearing an NYPD uniform, I still think that's okay. Because... Even though there's a risk at that point. There's a risk. Pretty big risk. Yeah. I'm interdicting an assault. And that's all right. Regardless of who is perpetrating it. Whether it happened to be some skinhead neo-Nazi wannabe or a member of the, the supposed law enforcement. 
you know. Now, and that's the thing that I find interesting is I think there's a there's a there's a difference there between defending yourself and preemptively engaging in violence. I think that's to me that's the crux right there. And yes, the first one was a riot, and frankly, it, maybe it's a little vague on who started what where. Um, but well, they it, they were being happened uh, except that NYPD showed well, up. Well, yeah, it's started. collectively believed that Marsha P. Johnson started it. And okay. everybody's very proud of that fact. So fair enough, uh, and, and that is an area I'm I am ignorant of. So, but yeah, it's I, I think defensive is absolutely justified. Period. That's one of those like you don't use force against your fellow citizens, but in self defense you can. Period. Yeah, and I, I mean I want to be clear. I'm not advocating punching police officers, but you know the thing is that there there it was an example of the power of the state going after people who were not hurting anybody, mm-hmm. going after them entirely because of who they were. And, you know, that then you have the question of if you're going to resist that, what's the most effective way? And we have, you know, the nonviolent resistance of the civil rights movement, several different civil rights organizations. And it was effective in, in helping raise awareness, draw attention, and ultimately get legislation passed. Um, and that's important. Um, but at the same time, you know, what, what if you have a situation where police are just going after people, you know, and I'm not saying that the police are Nazis, but what if you, I mean, you had that situation, police were going after people because of who they were and the police can say, well, we're just enforcing the law. We're just doing what, well, okay. But then how, how do you bring about, see that to me, that gets to a bigger, that goes beyond the, is it okay to punch a Nazi? Because if, if you have your state or your federal government, that are enacting policies that are oppressive, that are discriminatory, which this country has more of a history of than not. Um, yep. You know, it's it's not a matter of, okay, if I go up and, like, punch one of those people that supports it, that's not going to do anything. I mean, it needs to be a matter of organized resistance, and we've seen how nonviolent resistance is, is effective. Um, but then, it, you know, it's a question, like, at what point would you... At what okay, as a hypothetical, at what point would the authoritarian actions of your state government or federal government get to a point where there should be armed resistance, which after all is what happened in the American Revolution? Where would that point be? And and I, I don't have a a speculation ready for like when that point would be. But that, that's kind of what we're getting toward talking about here, especially when we're talking about Stonewall, mm-hmm. because that is, you know, the police officers can say, hey, we're just enforcing the law. But look at the law. So they're, you're going after people just because of who they are. Right. Well, and that's it touches on several interesting points. One is is like that. At what point can is, is nonviolent resistance insufficient, I guess, is the term. Um. But also goes to it to a point of, of okay if, if law enforcement as agents of the state are oppressing a group whatever group that is for whatever reason and we have said abstractly hey as a society we're not going to use force against each other we're going to rely on you know government agents they're the only ones who are who are authorized to really use force in most circumstances to enforce the laws blah 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 but the laws themselves are discriminatory then it becomes a question of well how are those actors accountable and where does change come from. And if we were in, you know, a, you know, a kingdom or a dictatorship or whatever, there is no accountability. It's the dictator's will. 
one of the whole points of a democracy is so that those laws and those actors are accountable to the people ultimately. And so one course of action, I'm not going to say it's the only one, but one of the courses of action that is for political is political action. Change, change the politicians and change the laws so that the oppressive laws aren't there and the state can't use force to enact oppressive laws against the people. No, and I think that's important. Um, but the other part of this, in addition to the, well, the, the element of popular sovereignty and majority rule and doing what you can to convince the majority of, of doing the right thing, but we also have rule of law, and it's rule of law that is meant to be what protects the rights of everyone. And usually in government textbooks, it's, it's phrased as, oh, majority rule and minority rights. Well, it's really everybody's rights. It's not just the rights, it's everybody's rights. But the way, and this is the most important thing, the way it gets protected is through rule of law. And that's one of the reasons why, at the federal level, courts are as independent as possible. I know we talk about checks and balances, but everybody needs to read Federalist 78, where, where Hamilton talks about the importance of an independent judiciary. Literally, for federal judges and justices, the one check, once they're in their job, is that they can be impeached and expelled by Congress. If they engaged in inappropriate favors being given by people who are in front of them with cases? Well, let me give a you a more, a more precise. They could be impeached for whatever the House of Representatives deems is an impeachable offense. Thank you, Gerald Sorry. R. Ford. Um, which, I mean, he actually thank you because i mean that was that was no, like he was correct correct I mean, that's yeah. pretty much what it is and you know impeachment is is a political action um which is what's funny because a lot of times when people talk impeachment they start imposing this whole like legalistic like judicial, judicial framework yeah, yeah it's that that's not what it is no it is a political act because the, the ultimate result the worst case scenario is the person's out of office and and we will we will talk about different elements it sounds like a trial because we want to afford the person who's been accused by, you know, the House of Representatives or by their state legislature's House of Representatives, in the case of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, um, that they're afforded due process in presenting their case to the Senate. Um, and so we hear things like that, but it's still a political action. It's still a matter of votes in, in the Senate mm -hmm. um, or in the House, for that matter, for the impeachment part. Um, but anyway, just, just to sort of get back, the, the rule of law part and, and trying to keep the judiciary as insulated as possible, it doesn't mean that the judiciary is not influenced by politics, but to keep them as insulated as possible from politics was essential, as Hamilton said, when you have a constitution of limited powers. Um, but there's an awful lot of Supreme Court cases over the years that, that tends to more expand what Congress can do, or on occasion even what a state legislature can do. And, you know, there's been some stuff passed recently in some states, including ours, that if it ever makes it to the Supreme Court, if it, I'm going to go ahead and say this, if it was any Supreme Court prior to about five years ago, I would assuredly say, you know, there, there's no way that this is going to be found constitutional. Um, but there's, there's enough justices on the court now who are of a, I'm going to go ahead and say of a, of a different legal mindset of what what of how they may rule on certain things that I that I think some of that might be in doubt. Cocktail break. All right. So this evening we are drinking Boulevardiers, and if you know what a Negroni is, it's really easy to make a Boulevardier. So a boulevardier 
um, I'm saying it a lot just because I like to pronounce the name. It is equal parts um, rye or bourbon, and you know me, I'd prefer rye, um, sweet vermouth, and Campari. Okay, and, and Negroni would be the gin instead of the rye. And um, it's very good. It, it makes it, it's almost kind of like a Manhattan because it has the same kind of ingredients. I mean, Campari is, is sort of like a bitters, but it's like equal parts. Um, one thing that I do though, because I like to use is Antica, which is like, if you're making any cocktail that uses sweet vermouth, you need to use Antica. It's great. You'll even drink it straight. Yeah. You can, it's the only vermouth I know that I would drink straight. Not even Dolan would I drink straight, but Antica and Dolan's good. Don't get me wrong. Um, but so I'm a little, instead of equal parts, like I go a little bit lighter on the vermouth and then maybe a little bit stronger on the Campari. And maybe this evening I went a little bit too strong on the Campari, but it didn't bother me any. Um, but that, you know, I do that just, it's just kind of like an adjustment to taste, but it is, it is a very nice cocktail. So in adjusting to taste, let's put this in context. So Mac here is talking about roughly equal parts, you know, whiskey, Campari and vermouth. A Manhattan has a little bit of vermouth, a very good bit of bourbon, and a few dashes of bitters. So this Boulevard here we have is basically tastes like Negroni, and that's about it. So really? you, you don't think that you it's... You know, I, I, I'm willing to try it with, with a severely toned back Campari. But okay. yeah, no, I'm just kidding. I, I, I couldn't see a whole lot of difference between, between this and the uh, Negroni last time. I'll be honest. Okay, then the next round we'll, we'll have to like dial, dial up the, the bourbon or the rye and then maybe dial back the Campari a little bit. We can try that. But it's a great cocktail. Now it's time for What's That Over There? Squirrel! So, all right. <laughs> Just because, no, okay, fine. So um, there, there's a book that I really liked that I think I mentioned last time. I finished reading it, and then I went back to reading the Haldeman Diaries of you know, his time in the Nixon administration. And it's, um, I mean, wow. It's just, it's, it's, it's a lot of, you know, hey, you know, we had a meeting about this, and the next day, oh, the president was upset about something in this, and it's just like, okay, I can't do this right now. So I do like Ray Bradbury. Um, I, I came to Ray Bradbury um, somewhat later in life. I was made to read Dandelion Wine in high school and didn't get anything out of it. Like I didn't get anything out of a few things in high school. Um, but got on a Ray Bradbury kick a few years ago. And anyway, so now I'm reading The October Country, which is a compilation of short stories. Um, and if you didn't know this, there's a lot of Ray Bradbury books that that are actually just a compilation of short stories, kind of like iRobot from Asimov is a compilation of short stories. But October Country is, is some of his uh, short stories that are, that are a little darker. And he, and he has this running theme in a lot of his stories about like carnivals and sort of like the darker side of carnivals in the Midwest and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, and so, you know, a lot of the stories are, are kind of about that. And it's just, they're, they're good reads. I mean, there's not really a lot of science fiction in them, which you would associate with Ray Bradbury, but they're just good they're just solid short stories. And I, I just, I really enjoy reading. So two things that have caught my attention recently. I am intermittently reading How to Hide an Empire. Uh, I have that book. Which is 
it's eye-opening because when I went to school, the U.S. was always held up as, hey, look at us. We were cool. We didn't we didn't colonize people. We didn't take over land like the British or the French or anybody else before as us. Much. <laughs> and, and yeah, this it, it's an impressive book. It's very well. It's very easy read, first of all. But it's also fact dense, which is a challenge. But like every sentence, you're learning a fact that you didn't realize. And just it's so informative, but also such an easy read. It's just great. You just keep going through the book. But it, it highlights so many interesting things about the U.S. Um, it shows how we were totally colonial um, in our own way. Um, Philippines being the worst example, I would argue. Oh. But there being many. Easily. Um, talks, but, yeah. about, talks about how by the end of World War II, there were actually more people under the U.S. authority and under the U.S. flag than lived in the continental U.S. That, that was the minority of the people that the U.S. was, was overseeing. But later in the book, it gets into how basically the U.S. continued empire, but did it differently, mostly because of logistics and technologies developed in World War II. And so we were able to have the same benefits and uh, achieve the objectives of empire as far as having reliable access to materials and having influence and having all those things you want, but without having to have all those large land holdings. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a fascinating read. It's really, really interesting. Even if you already kind of knew that the U.S. was a colonial jerk, um, it gives you a lot of interesting detail and backstory behind it. I mean, and it starts revolutionary time westward expansion. It covers the whole gamut. So that's fascinating. The other thing I've been reading recently, sort of rereading, is Splinter of the Mind's Eye, the graphic <laughs> novel. Uh, Wait, there's a graphic novel? Yes, there's a graphic novel. Oh, my gosh. Um, so I'd read the novel version not too long ago. Um, and just recently read the graphic novel version, which is lovely. Um, for those not familiar, this was a novelization of basically a sequel to the original Star Wars film. This is this book is the closest our timeline has gotten into shifting into a parallel universe, where the whole Star Wars saga would have taken a completely different... Sort of. But also, this could fit with only minor tweaks into the existing Star Wars timeline between New Hope and Empire. It could work. Okay, yeah. It could work. But, it, but the novelization does more of a, of a different path. Which, frankly, if you've ever seen the original, this fits really nicely with the original. Because in this one, the Luke and Leia were not related. Right. At all. Yeah. Um, it follows that thread. Well, I mean, th this is like, I mean, remember in Star Wars, it's like she kisses him for good luck before they swing across the chasm. And yeah, when, when that movie was made, there there was like, I mean, Lucas did have an idea of, you know, the, the mythos and everything, but not everything was settled. And, and just to interject this, one of the reasons why Splinter of the Mind's Eye was written is because, you know, like they weren't sure at the time how well Star Wars was going to do. And they thought, okay, maybe maybe there's a chance for a sequel, but the studio is just not going to put up a whole lot of money. And so Splinter of the Mind's Eye would have, would have been like the novelization for the film mm -hmm. that yep. would have happened. Yep. And it was very much a, a small scale, mm -hmm. no big space battles, a lot of foggy planets where you didn't have to pay for backdrops kind of thing. It was very much a low budget conceptualization. But it's funny because even the, the novelization of the original movie also ghostwritten by yeah. the same guy, um, is a fascinating read. Because even though it's on 
the movie, which we've all seen and we know it, there's a lot of backstory given in that novel that is completely yeah. radically different. Like in that one, the emperor is basically a figure, a doddering figurehead. He's not some arch nemesis of anyone. You know, he's propped up, and there's multiple uh, Sith lords of which Darth Vader is one, and it's yeah. a it's a completely different yes. way this was going to go. So, well, and also think about like even even in the movie, when you know Grand Moff Tarkin, played by Peter Cushing, is like yelling at Vader, "Enough of this, bickering, Vader, release him!" Yeah. It's like, wait a minute, who gets to do that? Apparently, Tarkin. Yeah, and because of of where where things could have gone, and so it's actually kind of neat to like people our age, I guess, to, to go back and watch the original Star Wars and, and you see the these things that, you know, don't quite fit with the rest of mm -hmm. what's going to happen. You know, they're just a little off. Um, but it's because, you know, that they're, they're, you know, things could have gone a different direction for some things. But back in my youth, when I was in college, and you couldn't just watch these films willy-nilly whenever you wanted to. It was about 10 years ago. About yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, they... At, at, at the cinema at the college they showed the original three Star Wars films back to back to back and you could watch them back to back it was the first time I'd really seen them like since they were released in the theater effectively and watching them that way it's jarring how much Empire and Return of the Jedi were clearly intended to go together and were thought of as a whole the first one was not headed that direction it was a completely different trajectory and then yeah. they were like oh this was successful crap what are we going to do let's change it yeah yeah, and they severely took a right turn and went down a different path. Lovely path, but very different. So I'm just going to make one comment sort of related to that, but then I'm, I'm going to leave it and, and maybe we can save it for a, a discussion for another time. So summer of 2020, you know, a lot of people were staying home because the pandemic or whatever. So I take the opportunity to watch the nine films back to back. I mean, not all at once, not at one sitting, but like one, one each day. And so I'm going to say that, that, that I think for some people this is going to be a hot take. But episodes one through three, I think you're going to hold up better over time than seven, eight, and nine. Wait, the new ones? Or are you talking about episode one, two, and three? Episode one, two, and three, Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones. Okay, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And Revenge of the... Mm -hmm. That for all the criticism that, let's face it, our generation gave them because it's like, okay, you, okay, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, and Jar Jar, what the... Anyway... But, I will defend Jar Jar Binks to my death. Okay, well, I'm not gonna kill you, so it won't be soon. But I'm I, 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 I'm disappointed in Jar Jar Binks. But but anyway, I and mean, we can save that. That can be another thing. But I just want to say that I think because because there's a lot of people who are like of our generation that that for whom Episode Seven was was fan service for Gen X. Is all that was absolutely it was glorious and, fan service and that was all it was no it wasn't and it was I, great i got to see x-wings fly again got to see cool millennium falcon moves but it was basically a rehash of new hope oh and oh, great you mean character like development oh image wait. wise not plot yeah, wise no there was no plot in fact I'm, I'm gonna agree with you on your take because basically i can still remember the stories and movies of episodes one two and three I honestly can't really recall 7, 8, and 9 that well. Well, 7 was A New Hope. Okay, again, 1, 2, and 3, Phantom Menace and all of those, yeah. or are you talking about the no. original Star Wars? The original Star Wars are 4, or 5, four, five and 6. Okay, I'm just yeah, checking to yeah. make sure that we're all on the same I, page. I'm adhering to the episodes as explained in okay. the opening crawls. Good, I just want to sure. make sure. Yeah, 4, 5, and 6 were the originals. 1, 2, and 3 were the generally Lucas-helmed prequels. Gotcha. 
Just wanted to make sure we're all on the same page. Four, five, and six were the more more recent ones, which were kind of a random hodgepodge of random crap, which had lovely occasional random elements by accident, but that was about it. Well, and it also, one of them ends up being like, you're you're in my biggest argument in Star Wars, and that's The Last Jedi. But we can save that for another time, because we could just go on and on and on. Yeah, that might have to be its own podcast. Yeah, it could be. (laughs) Speaking of canon, has anybody watched Ahsoka? Yes. I have not yet. Okay. But I really want to. I was... So please watch it so we can discuss in detail. You got it. I would like to say, as a primer, before you get to see it, they have the opening crawl, but it's different. They brought back the crawl. They did bring back the crawl, which in and of itself is glorious, but they did it different. Okay. And I want to know your take on the crawl. How they did it? Just like straight up the show? No, no, no. You have to watch. You have have to watch watch it. Uh, Okay. I, I, I will be. You know, this is another thing. Like, it's not going to ruin it for me. No, no, if no, you no. Tell me you have to watch. No, okay. you have to just experience it, and I want right. your reaction. Because okay. we will not tell you, so you will watch it all the faster so we can discuss it. You know, when I told my students that they could talk about Infinity War in front of me in Endgame because I'd already looked up what happened in the movies, even though I hadn't seen them, they looked at me and they're like, you're a monster. And I'm like, no, I just don't want to subject myself to emotional terrorism. On behalf of everyone on the planet. You go to the movies for an emotional experience. If you're not allowing yourself to be manipulated, why are you even there? Because I, it's the journey. <laughs> it's the not the same journey. Okay, let me give you a concrete example. I majored in English. Let's talk about Attack it's of the, the Clones. Journey. So did I. Attack of it's the Clones. the journey, yeah. So. God, that was you, just, in retrospect, it's just kind of like, uh, I liked it. But you and I watched it. You and I saw Yoda jump on a ship with a whole bunch of stormtroopers, and we freaked the hell out because, no, oh my true. God, Yoda that's and stormtroopers. He was awesome. It's like you finally got to see what Yoda can do. Yeah. That was nice. But had you watched it, and that was your first experience of Yoda, completely yeah. different and framing And you had experience. just read about Yoda on Wikipedia? Really? Really? Yeah, no. That, okay, that's fair. Perhaps, perhaps... <laughs> I'm not as invested in Marvel, especially after having like been binge watched the first 28 Marvel films before. On behalf of the rest of the planet. I can't can't wait to hear what that sounds like. I'm going to come. I'm going to come to Max defense here a little bit in that. And I will squash it. If one is going to be invested in a universe, Star Wars takes precedence over Marvel. Ooh, that's hard for me. That's that's a knife to the back, man. Because like, oh, so much of my personal life is in both of those two I, franchises. No criticism of Marvel. I like Marvel, but I, I kind enjoy of Marvel. Steve I like Marvel. That I, I would oh do. man! But I would also say, for me personally, Star Trek trumps Star Wars because Star Trek is sci-fi. Star Wars is space opera. Well, They're kind of two different things. I I used to. Rank like Star the Trek up there, but I have to admit I have tapped out post Chris Pine, and Chris Pine did it to me. Um, so, I don't care about Star Trek. The new so tracks. I'm, I'm, I'm going to mention that first of all, Star Trek is 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 loose science fiction. It is not a hard sci-fi by any stretch. It used to be, but we may have to add a separate. No, they were always really loose with the science. Really loose with the science. It's only gotten looser. Look, have you ever tried to reverse the polarity? Yes, first the plug of all, doesn't go in that Doctor way. Who invented that, so 
yet another fandom. No, okay, no, no there's a clip. So. No, there's a clip of like one of those black and white serials from the matinees from back in the 30s or whatever. Where no, I can I can find this for you. Where it's like one of these, and they're they're dressed in pajamas with like lightning bolts on them or whatever. And somebody looks at somebody else and is like, "We need to reverse the polarity." And I'm like, "Oh my god, <laughs> they got it from the oh my god." I you know? I would like to know what that is. Everything no, came from thirty serials. Everything. No, I literally did. all of it. Well, no, and okay, going back to Star Wars, like big influence was like Buck Rogers and, and Flash Gordon. And if you look at and Coruscant, also Scrooge McDuck. I oh, wait, that was Indiana Jones. Sorry, go ahead. I can't argue that either way. <laughs> oh, have you not seen the Scrooge McDuck uh, comic book series that basically is the opening sequence to uh, Indiana Jones? Scrooge McDuck shoots a guy? Like, afterwards? Uh, the golden idol and switching out the idol and the rolling stone chasing down Scrooge McDuck. A, instead of... no, B, Did this not... is after Indy, right? Or... No, 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 no. Wait, Keith Richards chasing a duck? No, what are no, we talking no, no. About? Scrooge McDuck had a comic book that came out before Indiana Jones, and that's not Temple of Doom, is it? No, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark, sorry. What the wrong with you that you would possibly confuse? I okay. was drinking one of your Manhattans. Look at it. And a while ago, it looks like. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty empty. Um, but no, <laughs> it like. It was terrible. I, I should. I'll cut all this if I can't verify it. But no, there is no, literally a Scrooge no. McDuck comic book that has the opening sequence to Indiana Jones. Like, okay, let, let me let and me, apparently let me lay out. Spielberg in an interview like admitted this was one of his favorite comic book series. All right, let me let me lay out two possibilities. One is that you're wrong, and my childhood's That's very intact. possible. The other path, kind of lay madness, frankly. I'm not sure that I can handle the fact if Scrooge McDuck was the original. I'm going to say, Steve, that's, that's an interesting take. Because As the editor it, of this podcast, it, I will be cutting all of this <laughs> if I am incorrect. We'll, it, we'll have mid-month outtakes episodes. <laughs> it, it doesn't ruin my childhood if that's true. And also, if it does lead to madness, I mean, I'm probably a little okay with that. So, Like way. in general or mine in particular? Uh, I mean, either way. Okay. But it, it's, um, yeah, no, I, the precursor stuff, I mean, like, okay, think about Lucas and, you know, the, the hero's journey and stuff like that and the, the influence of Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. So if a Scrooge McDuck cartoon influenced Raiders of the Lost Ark, I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark was intended to be, you know, like one of those serials. And in fact, that's, okay, that's something about Star Wars. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, the original story, I mean, it's a movie, Empire Strikes Back is a movie, but, you know, look at how they cut the scenes and where they're... It, it's it is sort of episodic and i really think this is one of the reasons why one of the reasons not the only reason why i like i really like the mandalorian and um and some of the other series because star wars does really well as episodic mm -hmm. yeah. yeah it does which is why you should watch ahsoka no i absolutely will i mean it's on my list to watch i just haven't done it yet You'll like it. Um, I it rocks. I will. Yeah, I know I like it. How did this segment start? You because read a book. The, he read a book. The, yeah, I, I mentioned Splinter in my mind's eye, which I intentionally oh. kind of brought up one because I read it in two because I knew it would springboard into. Cocktail break. So the second cocktail of the evening is a Manhattan. 
uh, because we had it on hand, we used the same vermouth, Antica, which is a lovely vermouth. I'm quite fond of it. Um, went a more traditional route of just sticking with uh, Angostura bitters. But we used a locally produced uh, whiskey, specifically Ranger Creek's 44 Rye. Which is very nice. It's very, very green, but very nice. It's green. It's nice. What, I didn't get to mention this earlier, but one of the fun things about it, they age it in their bourbon casks. Their 36 bourbon, which is, there's a theme there. Welcome to Texas. Yeah, on brand. Um, but yeah, so that's what we had. It was, I, I tend to go with about a four to one, five to one with my vermouth to, to whiskey when I do Manhattans. Um, mostly because I'm using that. That Antico, was a which lot of numbers. <laughs> a four to one, five four to one, one for the or 44. Five to one ratio. So there's one part vermouth to four or five parts whiskey. Um, Depending on the whiskey and then the yeah. the vermouth, but Antique is strong, so you you really need to have it be a, a minor player in Manhattan. Yeah, I would I would when I make a a Manhattan with Antica, I, I tend to have it be like five to one because Antica is so just. And for those of you like it, and Antica is like if you're drinking Mountain Laurel. I mean, it's it's really nice. One of the, one of the books I have on cocktails described it as the monster truck of vermouth. In a good way, well, I don't know that I'd say <laughs> because it's got a lot of strong flavor and it's it's a powerful kind of kind of thing. It's like if anything alcoholic is going to be like monster truck. I'm thinking like the the bottles of ancient age on the bottom shelf that are plastic with the easy grip handles. I mean that's something with Everclear, but yeah, okay, that works too. Okay, Hagermeister. Well, oh my god, there you go. It's really horrible memories associated <laughs> with that. That not because I drank it, but. Don't, yeah, yeah, me problems. So that was that was it. A nice, nice Manhattan with a local whiskey. Yeah, no, and I, I my the, the best Manhattan I've ever had uses Old Overholt, which which I was already using with my Manhattans, and then I was out um, at a place in Houston actually, and ordered a Manhattan, and I was like, as soon as I tasted it, I was like, oh, this is gold. <laughs> And and I asked the the waiter, and he said, and the key was he used he used Antica Vermouth. It was Old Overholt, it was Angostura bitters, but then it was Antica Vermouth, and like that literally makes all the difference. And for me, that's that's going to be your best Manhattan, Old Overholt, you know, five to one with Antica Vermouth, and then plentiful dashes of of Angostura bitters. But I do like this because the with the forty four rye, there there is a I don't want to say complexity because that's trite but it's it there's a different taste to it but it's it's kind of nice it's interesting but i think next time we're gonna have to move on to something a little bit different for our cocktails yeah no i i agree um i'm not sure what we could do next we'll, we'll have to think about that but we we could i have a copy of the savoy cocktail book and they literally have like a thousand um so it's like i think it's from like the late 1800s we've got options yeah which brings us to the discussion we were having in the break, mm -hmm. off mic, about the fact whether or not cocktails were primarily invented to hide the taste of bad whiskey during Prohibition, or if cocktails existed beforehand. And you'd mentioned that you have an 1890 cocktail book, so yeah. clearly they predate it. I guess my question is, it would be interesting to see what kind of cocktails there were pre-Prohibition. And what came after prohibition as a result of bad whiskey? No, absolutely, and we can do news. a little research on that because, like, I, I am tempted to say like a Manhattan dates from the 1800s, but I'm I don't have that in front of me. I'm not positive, but there there are some classic cocktails that like a Sazerac goes far back, and that's my favorite cocktail is the Sazerac. It's just the best thing ever. Um, 
And no, think, that'd think, be interesting. We could talk about I think that. the bias there might be whiskey cocktails because you yeah. couldn't get decent whiskey yeah. during or after prohibition because of the fact that it has to age for several years. Yes. Whereas gins, you could make in your bathtub apocryphally. Mm. So I, I'm wondering if you see more gin cocktails um, after prohibition than before. Uh, maybe. And I, I would venture a guess that if we're talking about, you know, cocktails were meant to hide the the bad base liquor is probably going to be those bathtub gin cocktails. Yeah. But I, I mean, if we're, we're talking, you know, in the Gilded Age, like cocktails were, co- I mean, that, that was, you know, they were served at famous hotels. It, it, I don't think it was really that, oh, you make a cocktail to hide the bad whiskey. I mean, uh, I'm pretty sure we've had some pretty good whiskey in this country for a while. Um, somewhere I remember hearing about the gin and tonics were a critical part of the British Empire because effectively it had a anti-malarial. Oh, because of the quinine? Yeah. No, I've heard that too. I don't know if... That's one of those things you hear that and like for most of your life you're like, wow, that's okay, whatever. And then you get to a certain age and you're like, that's probably bullshit. But, you know... Yeah, you never know. But was it bullshit that the British believed and that's why they became so popular? Um, Either way, a gin and tonic sucks. I know that's not a popular opinion, but I disagree. Yes, I yeah. Well, okay, actually, let me okay, if you like gin and tonics, let me ask you this. It it had been years in between me having a gin and tonic. There's other gin cocktails that I like, but I mean gin and tonic was just never my drink. But I remember when I was like very much younger, um, that I had a gin and tonic and the the tonic part was it was bitter, which didn't actually bother me a whole lot. But more recently, like a couple of years ago, when I, when I got, you know, like the Schweppes tonic water or something to, to make a, a gin and tonic out of or, you know, whatever I used, there was a sweetness in the tonic water that I don't remember there ever being. And I must be remembering it wrong, right? I'm, tonic water to me is very bitter. I, I never remember it being sweet. So I don't know, then maybe it's a me thing. And if it's a me thing, I don't know what kind of me thing that is that all of a sudden, if it's I have a, a you tonic, drink too much Campari thing, there, well, it could be, <laughs> well, really I drink too much scotch, but, and there's really no such thing as too much scotch. Um, but no, when, when I had the gin and tonic, I was, I, I could still taste the bitterness there, but there was clearly like a, a sweetness there that was in the tonic was sure as hell went in the gin. You, probably because you were using some sort of mass market Schweppes kind of thing that was sweetened for American palate. Well, yeah, I can see that. What kind of tonic do you use? I'd, honestly, whatever is at HEB. Okay. You know. I, I will say this my gin and tonics are gin and tonics and a whole lot of lime because I'm all about citrus in my cocktails. I absolutely love citrus. You know what we should do? Okay, let's use that. Let's figure out a cocktail for next time. That that uses citrus like like where the lime or the lemon Margarita. Or both is a you know that's not a bad idea. Actually, a Moscow Mule wasn't that? Were you the one that yes. said you hadn't had one? I've never had one. Mm-hmm. I've had one. They're not bad. Do we have the copper mugs? I do. I have several because Moscow Mule is my cocktail of choice. Nice. There we go for next okay, time. Moscow Mule. Last call. What have you learned tonight, Steve? I learned that Mac is a shocking pacifist when it comes to Nazis. I resent that remark. Also resemble that remark. Back in the day, you used to be more than happy to punch a Nazi. 
Well, I was the the you know tree hugger hippie who wanted to say no, 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 don't punch. Well, but I mean, it, I mean they deserve it because any human being should know better. Like what human being says, I, I'm just gonna adopt a, an ideology where I hate people and I want to murder them. Genocide? I'm down with that. Yeah. No. I mean, so you get punched in the face, but they're a human being. And if, if there's a way to, 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 you know, turn them to good, okay, um, why wouldn't you do that? We should do that. That's the better way to do things. So any human is, should be considered redeemable. Because that's actually what distinguishes us from the Nazis is believing things like that. So, and part of, sorry, there's some construction going on in the background. Um, but, you know, but at least, you know, I mean, think about it, like the, the Nazis who, who, I mean, people today who base their idea on like hatred or whatever and, and, you know, faking any sense of like camaraderie or, or whatever with their common ideology of hatred. No, but you know what? Having cocktails with friends, talking about the stuff going on in the world, you know, that's worthwhile. I can toast to that. Cheers. 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 You have been listening to Civics on the Rocks, a once a month podcast featuring a real engineer going by the fake name of Steve, a real history teacher going by the fake name of Mac, and a fake producer going by the real name of Ann Traminsky. That's me. The guys drop a lot of references while they talk. We've tried to document them all in order of appearance on our website at civicsontherocks.podbean.com. We're also Civics on the Rocks on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads if you want to suggest a question of the day, or cocktail recipes, or different types of media you think we should check out. Whatever. Please drop by. We may also have an account on the platform formerly known as Twitter, but it's hard to tell these days. If you didn't like our podcast, well, I doubt you're still listening, but if you are, thanks for giving it a go. We know we're not everybody's glass of iced tea. If you did like our show, please follow, review, and share. And stay tuned for our next episode next month. Until then, cheers, y'all. <laughs>